Welcome to Season 5 of Writers' Festival Radio, broadcasting from the unceded and unsurrendered territory of the Anishinaabe Algonquin Nation. My name is Sean Wilson. I'm the Artistic Director of the Ottawa International Writers' Festival, Canada's Festival of Ideas since 1997. We're celebrating 25 years of community connection, and I want to give special thanks to our amazing volunteers who make it all possible, and to thank you for supporting the festival, authors, booksellers, and each other. Today, on Episode 1 of Season 5, we bring you Kate Hartfield in conversation with Irish-Canadian playwright, literary historian, novelist, and screenwriter, Emma Donahue, about her latest novel, Haven. Here's Kate Hartfield. Hello, everyone. I am Kate Hartfield, and I'm here with Emma Donahue, and I'm so so pleased to be doing this podcast. This is really exciting for me as a longtime reader of yours. Uh, so first of all, congratulations on Haven, your new Thank book. you. Thank you. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm still at the stage of newborn, you know, protective fondness with it. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah. <laughs> the exciting time. Um, so just to introduce uh, who I am, uh, my name is Kate Hartfield. I'm an Ottawa writer and longtime friend of the Writers' Festival and um, I recently had a novel come out called The Embroidered Book, which was published uh, by HarperCollins here in Canada. And I've discovered that a perk of sharing a publisher is that I got sent an advanced copy of Haven and was able to read it uh, in advance of publication. And uh, I just loved it. I read it in the hotel room uh, when I went down to Word on the Street, uh, which was my first in-person book event of the pandemic. And it was very healing and uh, a wonderful thing to read at that time. So uh, I just adored it and was very happy to jump at the chance to, to talk to you about it today. Oh, thank you so much. Word on the Street was a great one for you to break your, you know, your, your COVID streak of staying home. <laughs> That's such a lively festival. It's, it's very reader focused, that one somehow. Yeah, it was so wonderful. And I hadn't been there before. And, and of course, it being outdoors, I felt more comfortable. And yeah, it was a great way to get back into seeing people and doing things. And, oh, listen, uh, I have to yeah, tell you a story. Really I read once at Word on the Street and I was in some tent called something like New Voices. You know, they don't know how to label you. So they stick three Im immigrants together in a small tent. And Bonnie Bernard, who lived in London, Ontario, like me, she was in this massive tent called the Scotiabank Killer Prize Winners, you know. And when I dinner with her the following week I jokingly mentioned this that she was like the big lady and I was the nothing and she was appalled that I felt this this differential and she turned up with a tray of cupcakes the next day and said you're a big star to anyone who knows literature oh. was so kind <laughs> never forgotten it <laughs> that's lovely yes there should be more cupcakes in publishing I think writer to writer <laughs> cupcakes too not just from our publishers or agents but yes kindness between writers in cupcake form <laughs> exactly yes uh, so let's begin with uh, a short reading. Um, so Emma, if you don't mind just reading um, a page of Haven and just to get a sense for the flavor of it, and then uh, we'll go into a conversation. Sure. The year is um, about 600 and three Irish monks have set off from their large and relatively comfortable monastery because their leader, Art, has this vision that they need to get away from the world to an absolutely isolated spot. So they have literally shipped oars and let, them, and let their boat drift out to sea, and they've spotted these two extraordinary islands called the Skelligs, incredibly pointy, sharp terrain. Here they are. While they circle the ragged pyramid, it seems to unfold and come apart. 
two great breasts of rock divided by a cleft as if the Great Skellig has been cracked almost in half. The south side is quite different, cliffs tower above the little boat, but on the other side of the headland a gigantic cove opens up. The prior Art leans forward. Now this is more promising. But Trian doesn't like the look of the open sea to the west. Maybe too exposed though, father, he says tentatively. There's no shelter at all if a breaker were to roll in while we were landing. He can't help thinking of his kind uncle and his mean one, both plucked off the shore in the same moment. So the three monks row on, sweating in the still air. There's a splash to the left and a flurry of water. Dolphins! Trian hasn't seen one since he was a child. Cormac, the old monk, his eyes bulge at the sight of the sleek creatures leaping along in the boat's wake. They speed up to come alongside and pass the boat and then they double back, clearly curious. The prior stares past the creatures. He steers farther out to give a wide berth to a reef of islets and sea stacks that trails off to the west of the Great Skellig. Trian watches the water, wary of any rock that could hold their hide hull. Stroke by stroke, they work their way along to the northern face of the island, but this side is just as steep, incongruously, impossibly jagged. There's no hint of human presence, no level ground to land on, only tiny ledges crowded by kittiwakes and guillemots hundreds of feet up in the air. Trian spots another great cove without any flat ground to get out on. Stone walls lean over, becoming precipitous overhangs. A while later, he forces himself, despite his youth, to speak up. He says, Father, isn't this where we started? And the prior nods, frowning. Keep on, brother, he says. So I leave that there. Beautiful. Thank you so much. That took me right back into the book. Uh, so you gave us a little bit of an introduction there to that scene. Um, but do you want to talk a little bit more about the basic premise behind the book and uh, the story? Sure. Um, this is my only novel to have been very closely based, really, on an archaeological report. Um, there's this pair of islands off the coast of Kerry, which is the, the ancestral Donoghue part of Ireland. And um, I'd never been until 2016, and then I went around them in a boat trip, and I was just staggered by the landscape and by the story, which is that basically there have been monks on that island from about the year 600 through to about 1200 when they moved back to the mainland, possibly because of climate change. The winters were getting harsher. So I thought, how on earth did they manage? It just struck me as like colonizing the moon, you know, the, the hardness of this landscape where you would land, how you'd get up the cliffs. I mean, now, any visitor there now, and there are many visitors since Star Wars because um, the island features as Luke Skywalker's hideout in two of the films. But there are now steps cut into the cliffs by the monks all those centuries ago. But when they first landed, there wouldn't have been. And I was thinking they'd have all these practical problems to deal with, like food, shelter, water. You know, there's no water supply up there. They had to hold rainwater in cisterns. But of course, they were motivated by extraordinary considerations like, you know, prayer, scholasticism, um, copying out books, being a kind of a bastion of prayer against the devil on the western edge of Christendom. So they were not thinking in practical terms like, you know, uh, the main character in, in The Martian, you know. <laughs> so they had two very different agendas. And I thought that would make a really interesting story. Mm -hmm. And uh, how much of that is known? You know, how much, how much space was there to, for you to invent here? And how much of it did you draw from the actual records of what we know about uh, the early inhabitants on the island? Well, luckily, there was a lot of room because really early history is often insubstantial, you know, because there are, there are legends about various people settling there. Um, and also... I was able to deviate from the record in one way because what we know is what worked. 
We know that eventually the community there had goats and sheep they brought over, that they traded regularly with the mainland, which is only eight miles away. So they would have, you know, they would have brought their, say, huge bags of bird feathers or bird meat or eggs and traded them on the mainland for things they needed, like wheat or wine for saying the mass. Um, and firewood, for instance, no source of firewood on the island. And we knew that they were probably about a dozen. That was the typical number for such a settlement. There were a lot of these settlements, basically, you know, mad Christian settlements, just to stereotype them, where, where people tried to get away from the world, even though the medieval world was already so much quieter and underpopulated compared with our world. But I decided that if I was imagining a first party, they didn't have to follow these sensible methods. They could be extreme zealots and not bring any animals, not do any trading, not use that boat once they landed there. So I was able to imagine it as kind of a doomed first mission, really. But I did stick very closely to things like, um, you know, what the archaeological report says about what plants there were on the island early on. So I only found a reference to one plant which could grow to be tree-sized, which is the rowan. And then I thought, what if there's only literally one tree on the island? You know, like in Waiting for Godot, I imagine this land with only one small tree on it. So there was both a lot of very suggestive evidence in terms of the birds, say, all the different species that lived there, but also a huge, huge room in the historical record for me to make up my story. So it was kind of an ideal situation for me. Plenty of stimulus, but nothing constraining me. Mm -hmm. Yes, I, that one tree reminded me a little bit, too, of the the single tree in, in Gondor in Lord of the Rings, where there's, you know, a single <laughs> a single tree that's... that's uh, um, a symbol of so many things. Yeah, that was beautiful. Um, I'm curious about the three characters, the three men, and where where they came from for you, where their characters came from, and, and what you were thinking of when you came up with them. Yeah, um, it's funny. It's when when you're picking characters, it's a bit like you're assembling, you know, um, companions for a quest <laughs> to follow the Lord of the Rings motif. You kind of think of it in terms of what you need. So I knew that in order for them to drift out to sea and settle on this mad island, frankly, that you needed a visionary, a leader, someone to say, let's do this, even though it makes no sense and it may well lead to our deaths any month now. So, so Art the Prior had to be... Um, he had to be confident, uh, scholarly enough to, to want to set up an isolated monastic outpost because the main point of these monasteries was to, to copy holy texts, to make more books um, in, in conditions of extreme isolation. So I knew he had to be a religious zealot and have a lot of you know, visionary force and charisma, frankly, to be able to persuade anyone to go with him. And then I thought, well, I, I wanted a kind of a balance. I always thought it as a kind of a trinity. Um, you know, I thought three of them would be enough to make it kind of a family. And so I wanted one to be older and one to be younger. And I wanted the old one to have a lot of the knowledge they would need to get through even a first summer on the island. So somebody had to have stonemasonry skills and gardening skills. So I decided on this, this old monk with a stoved-in head. And then I thought, well, if, if, if the monks saved him after he got his head stove in, because monks were some of the only people who had the skills to do brain surgery back then, then he would be grateful to them. Um, and then I thought I need a young one who can shinny up and down those cliffs and somebody who's got some fishing skills and perhaps is able to swim, which was not at all common back then. So I came up with a kind of a dream team. You know, they may be oddballs, but <laughs> between them all, they do have all the necessary skills. And, you know, the, the, the older one, Cormac, and the younger one, Trian, they have that 
unquestioning obedience to their master, which frankly it would take in order to get you to get into a little boat made of hide and and literally drift out to sea, hoping that you weren't suddenly going to end up in Mm mid-Atlantic. Yeah, and that's one of the things I found really interesting about these three companions uh, as a story, because they all they all do have very strong faith and you know there's no contrast between the faith for any of them they're all coming roughly from the same place at least relative to other people and other times and, and other places um, but of course there are very significant differences in how that faith moves in them and, and how they interpret it and, and how they act on it um, so you know how was that in, in writing these characters where they're all they all are coming from the same worldview and and very close to each other um, how did you start to tease out the differences between them and, and understand them, their relationship? That's a really good question, actually. It's the first time I've had that question. Um, I, I was trying to represent different flavors of early Christianity, because it's funny, if you look up sort of Celtic Christianity on the internet, there's an awful lot of sentiment about like, oh, the Celtic Christians were somehow in tune with nature and revered women, and it was all a lovely kind of woo, labyrinth-filled flower garden. Not a bit. There are just as many stories of them, you know, um, blighting or killing birds as there are stories of them treasuring birds or letting birds nest in their hands, you know. In, in particular, the attitude to nature seemed to me to, to vary widely. And nature, I knew, would be crucial to my book because it's a very colonial story, you know. Three men land on an island and claim it for God. I mean, it could be the moon, it could be, you know... Uh, the American West. It's a very colonial story, even if there are no other humans on the island. And they, they all respond to the birds much as colonizers have always responded to indigenous people. So I decided that um, Trian could plausibly have a kind of a St. Francis of Assisi attitude to nature, like brother, son, sister, moon, you know, we're all, we're all part of creation. Because that strand is there in Christianity, but that art could have that, that traditional, you know, we are the bosses of the Garden of Eden. We name everything. We eat everything. <laughs> it's all for us. Um, and Cormac is just very, very pragmatic. You know, if they need to, you know, use puffins as fuel, he'll do that. He's lived so long. I don't give his age because, you know, an old, old man of the year 600 was probably about 40 and I thought it would sound comical to say that. But um, he's basically, he's, he's outlived any expectation of the life he, he would have had. Um, so he's just, he's just very down to earth in his, in his newfound faith. Um, he's a, you know, he's a pagan who got converted out of gratitude for the brain surgery the monks did on him. So he's like, okay, Christ, Christ is my Lord. Yeah, I'll follow him. And, and capturing that kind of feudal mindset was crucial because there were a few moments when my editors said like, oh, surely the other monks would be chafing or rebelling or expressing their individual view. And I'm saying, no, they didn't let themselves have an individual view. They were just they thought of themselves as slaves to their master, you know, willingly slaves. And that, that's a huge mental leap for anyone from the 21st century, isn't it? To, to imagine that you were just, you know, you've signed on the line, you're committed, you're a monk, you are not your own person anymore. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And a lot of what would be um, sort of obvious places for conflict and tension are not there because of that, you know, because, you know, right off the bat, um, you know, they all do very much believe that, yes, this, this makes sense. This is the sort of thing that, that, we, that we should be doing, uh, which is interesting because then you immediately get that um, closed space where the three of, three of them can, can have this relationship and have this, this great experiment uh, together. 
But equally, you know, groupthink can seem more and more sinister. I'm thinking of something like the wonderful TV series um, about Chernobyl, where all those communist leaders were sitting around together going, you know, there can't have been an explosion because Soviet science is the best. So it's just, it shuts out reality. They all just confirm each other. Um, So, yeah, I definitely tried to capture the the kind of sinister side of being part of an international organization like the Christian Church, as well as the obvious consolations that their faith gives these men. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I think that that came through. Um, And that that closed space, you know, that's something that, um, you know, obviously in in Room you used a lot as a storyteller is the sort of, you know, for a large part of that novel, there's a, a very enclosed space with only two characters in it for the most part. Um, and in Akin as well, I thought even though they're traveling, there's this very close relationship uh, between two characters. And um, is that, you know, you have many books that you haven't done that with. So, uh, you know, it, it's certainly not the only thing that you do. But is there something that appeals to you about about taking that and sort of saying, you know, here's my little ship in a bottle and how will I explore the story? Yeah, it does appeal to me. I think uh, very much in literary terms, it's not that I personally am preoccupied with these things. It's more that when I'm making a story and, you know, shutting the door seems the obvious way to turn up the temperature. Um, Yeah, it's funny. I I don't find these stories all so similar, but since Room, a lot of people really notice that preoccupation in me. And I think I just love intensity of relationship and the fastest way to make people you know, desperately irritated by each other, desperately fond of each other, desperately grateful to each other, is to confine them together. You know, if, or is, I start by putting them in a boat where literally, if one of them wants to change seats because he's seasick, you know, they, all three of them have to carefully step around the boat holding on and working as a team. It's like they're, they're acrobats together um, in, in a way they, they hadn't expected. So, yeah, I just love the intensity you get, I suppose. And I suppose it creates families of all these situations. Um, in my novel, The Wonder, say, you know, a nurse is hired to, look, to watch a little girl and they're total strangers, but because of the enforced intimacy and, and claustrophobic quality of what she's been hired to do, they're really operating as a kind of, um, you know, mother and daughter figure by about the second day. So in a way, it's a, it's a device to, to intensify. Yeah. You're listening to Writers' Festival Radio. As always, I want to thank you for listening and for supporting authors and booksellers through these difficult times. Our official bookseller is Perfect Books on Elgin Street, and wherever you are right now, there's an independent bookseller nearby who would be more than happy to sell you some great books. If you enjoy the podcast or any of our virtual programming, please consider making a charitable donation. We can't do this without your support. And now, back to the conversation. And you've mentioned already the birds on the island and the role of nature. And I was so struck by the uh, by the great ox and, um, you know, the way that uh, that those birds really do become almost characters in the novel and, you know, so important to uh, to what happens to the man. Um, so I'm just curious about what that was like for you to write about these birds that we have not seen and we don't have the opportunity to see to write about an extinct creature like that. Well, yeah, very early on, I realized, you know, this is going to be a sort of a, an, an eco fable, whether I planned it to be or not, because, you know, it's just so obvious that once the humans step onto this land, they're going to start changing it immediately and that they can't live without the birds. So the question is whether they live in some kind of balance with them or whether they just waste them. Um, so I decided that, the yeah, the, the birds available back then might not have been all the same ones. For instance, with 
Um, here's a lovely example of the sort of archaeology you find in linguistic archaeology. Um, there are certain words that um, we don't have a, a bird name for some species in Irish. The bird name the Irish use for that bird now is borrowed from English, so we know that those birds only came in later. Whereas all the birds that were around before the English came, we have an Irish word for them. Um, so, so I knew that some birds that are all over the Skelligs now um, um, weren't there. But equally, the great auk was in all coastal communities and they all ate them, these huge flightless birds. So I thought it very likely the monks did too. And um, the lovely thing about including an extinct species is that it just makes it really clear that something could be hugely um, um, you know, populous and apparently fine, and yet ultimately it's going to be killed off by you know, the, the repeated actions of these people. Um, so I studied coastal communities, um, you know, the Faroe Islands, um, uh, Newfoundland, for instance. I was, I was struggling with how my monks would manage without firewood. And then I found a great, a very handy for me reference to, um, I think, 17th century Newfoundland. They used to cook birds over a fire of birds. And I thought, oh, that's what my monks will do. So in a way, I was studying, um, you know, coastal communities anywhere I could to see what, what ways they managed to keep keep body and soul together you know mm-hmm. yeah and it's such a striking image that that part of the book it's so it's so oddly horrifying and you think you know well why is it horrifying if, you, know, <laughs> you know why is it any different to use birds for fuel in this way and not in this way and uh, it really raises a lot of questions it's very interesting um yeah and um the other thing i wanted to uh, to bring up from that was the um oh i've just lost my train of thought i was thinking about the great ox um but the, the, I think the fact that this was uh, a pandemic novel in some ways and the, the fending for yourself aspect of it and that, that psychology that I certainly found, you know, in the early days of spring 2020, mm-hmm. that I was, you know, focusing a lot on things like I have to make muffins for everybody. You know, if I make muffins, everything will be all right. You know, and you know, ver- the yes, sort of keeping very... the sourdough starter alive. <laughs> exactly. And then maybe I passing it on to neighbors starter. even, but without touching them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. And that, so that, uh, do you think that that, that psychological aspect was, was coming in for you with this book? With the, I do, I survival? do, because I'm the last thing from, I'm, I'm the farthest you could get from a survivalist, but I must admit in March, 2020, I, you know, paid on Amazon even for a huge supply of dried food that could keep a family of four alive for a month. And I remember thinking, I don't actually want to live to get to the point where I'm rehydrating these meals, but at least the teenagers can have them when I'm gone. (laughs) Yeah, it made me think more about survivalism and it made me think more about the climate too. It's as if we all had time to think hard about what we're doing to our world. So when there was all that talk about um, people volunteering to colonize the moon, no, sorry, Mars, I remember thinking this is just a sick joke. Um, you know, the idea that we would somehow do better on another planet, which is even harsher. Um, you know, clearly if we mess up this one, there's no second chance for us. So all that fed in. Yes, I find I find whatever is going on and whatever's in the headlines um, feeds into historical fiction. The idea that historical fiction is somehow cut off from the writer's real life and the writer's times um, is nonsense. It just gives you a little, it, it just allows you to consider these things at arm's length rather than in a very direct form. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that feeds back into the thought that <clears throat> escaped me a minute ago that, that has returned, which is about the, the great ox and the, you know, I don't think dramatic irony is the right word for it exactly, but the fact that the characters in the book don't know that these birds are going to go extinct. And the reader knows, of course, that they're going to 
be extinct. And um, so every, you know, seeing it through their perspective, um, there's this constant tension of, you know, oh, no, oh, no, <laughs> you know, don't do and, that. And, you know, I, I mulled over how to show that because people have often said it's hard to write cli-fi, you know, climate change fiction without a very, very long time frame. And when you write stories set over m- millions of years, you know, it, it doesn't tend to be very easy to keep the reader's attention because we get very attached to one lifetime at a time. So I thought, OK, I, I clearly I can't show the actual species being wiped out on the monks first summer, but I thought I can at least show how blundering and ignorant the monks are. So, for instance, they rashly assume that because the great auks don't fly, that the great auks will have to stay all winter and will be a perpetual food source. And so at the moment when the great auks happily swim away, you know, because they live on the water the rest of the year, my monks are just horrified, like, more or less, where did our food go? So I thought that moment would be a good example of how, you know, they're not thinking clearly about the, the other species from the other species' point of view. They're just seeing them as raw material. And that mindset can lead to real, you know, anti-scientific stupidity where you, you, you assume that your convenience is the rule that nature is going to follow. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And I feel the same way as a historical fiction writer that, <clears throat> no, probably we all do, that, um, you know, it is very much a reflection of the concerns of the time and, and how could it be anything else, really? Of course, so, of course. Yeah. I've always been maddened by Irving Welch's quote about, you know, how writing historical fiction is a cop-out. You know, if you're not writing about your time and place, then you're not doing your job. And I'm thinking yeah. that's a very narrow conception of your job, you know? Yeah, yeah. I think, you know, it's, 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 you're always writing about your time and place. <laughs> I don't know how you could, how you could not really. Yeah. Um, but, you know, speaking of historical fiction, I know a question that I, I get asked quite frequently, and so now I'm going to, to ask it uh, to you as well, which is about your relationship to research and how that process looks for you. Um, are you a person who tends to do it all up front or to, to get some of it done and then, and then research as you go? Well, it's funny, both, in that I would say I do what feels at the time like 100%, like surely I know more about the birds of the Skellig Islands than anyone could possibly need, you know, at that point I have just overwhelmingly huge files, which began terribly neat and orderly, but by the end they just contain extra files called called things like moron birds, you know, (laughs) extras on rock, you know, and then I'm thinking, okay, that's more than I could ever need, and then I start writing it, and like, Line two, I'm thinking, hang on, did they have underwear? You know, stuff you, you wouldn't think of in advance, like the underwear. So I spent a day finding out that, in fact, the Celts were known for underwear, that the Romans called them trouser wearers and sneered at them for wearing these woolen drawers. The Romans were just free-floating under their togas, but the Irish were wearing these woolly, woolly short um, breeches. Um, so yes, there I had my answer, but a whole day had passed. Same thing with, um, you know, the tonsure on the monks' heads. What shape was it? I had foolishly assumed it would be circular. No, no, it turned out to be triangular, but which way to the triangle point (laughs) so the work is never done but luckily I really really enjoy the research and I find it easier than actually writing so um so I'm always happy to stop what I'm doing and go off down a a legitimate rabbit hole you know (laughs) yeah yeah you never know where it will lead so (laughs) exactly that's the thing I could never hire someone else to do the research for me because I don't know what I want until I find it and often you know sitting in a say a university library with 20 books stacked around me um I will come across some tiny detail that isn't just a detail. It actually turns out to be a plot point, you know, like the, say, the, the Newfoundland, you know, uh, cooking of birds with birds. That that mm-hmm. turned out to be really a crucial element towards the end of the novel. So I couldn't have known to ask someone to find me that detail in advance. You just have mm-hmm. to, you have to get your hands dirty. Mm-hmm. 
Yes. And you're really going up, I think, a little bit against what the reader doesn't know that they don't know in this one, too. Well, I suppose one always is. But, um, you know, with, with the church, you know, as you're saying, people think they know what a monk looks like, right? And when you have the early church and the Irish church, and it's going to be, uh, there are going to be things that you have to sort of gently let the reader know, okay, what you're thinking here is is not accurate. Um, yeah, yeah so absolutely. And um, as, I, as I was saying earlier, there's always a variety within any religious tradition as well. You know, like clearly misogyny is, is central to the Christianity of art, the prior. He wants to get to the island and make an, an all-male space that will be pure because there'll be no nasty women there menstruating or seducing men or having babies. You know, he, it's a real kind of almost death wish. He wants this kind of sterile idea of purity, which is away from everything female. And, you know, clearly the other two monks don't think that way at all. Cormac deeply misses his lovely wife who died of the plague and Trian is just sort of open to all creatures and all creation. So, so I didn't want to stereotype Christianity. It's really, it's kind of zealotry and fanaticism and, and, and that, you know, anti-body attitude I'm trying to criticize here. It's not religion as such. Mm-hmm. In a way, people bring their baggage with them, right? And they bring their own characters into whatever religion, whatever religion they join. So, you know, they will find, you know, softness and mercy in it if that's what they bring with them, or they will find judgmentalism and, and, and meanness if that's what they bring. Mm-hmm. And did you find as a writer that it, um, that it, it, it affected you in a way, any way, or that you were thinking about it deliberately, the fact that you're writing a novel without any women in it, or was it just the fact that there are these three people um, you know, did, no, did that enter your you mind? You know, I was aware of it because it wasn't a story in which three people just happened to be, you know, three passengers from a cruise ship or something. Um, right. You know, they, they have, you know, they've been chosen as men to go and and form a settlement which will have no women in it. So so they're very self-consciously men. Um, mm. And so I was aware of it, but I thought I would be forgiven because my novels have included so many women before. <laughs> you know, I thought, okay, I'll be allowed an all-male novel for once because this is not a... A carelessly or casually all-male novel, you know? No, no. Um, and, and, you know, women are almost there by their absence, right? Is your absolutely. No, yeah. in a way, I think a, a, a useful working definition of feminism is do you, do you pay attention to gender? Do you, are you aware of its effects on everyone? You know, uh, whoever you are and however you're born, gender roles are going to affect you and probably confine you in some way. <laughs> you know, that's mm-hmm. the fundamental confinement that my characters are often um, pushing against is the confinement of gender roles. So, um, yeah, I, I, I was hyper aware of it this time. And I think, yes, you can write a, a feminist book about three men on an island, you know, mm-hmm. um, because you're you're aware of them as as men rather than just thinking they represent the human default, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and... Um, you know, to get back to the, the research question, you mentioned this in, in your author's note in the book that um, with with the pandemic arriving at this time, you were not able to actually go onto the island and research it. I have it a ticket. It. I have a ticket to go, but never got to go. I know it's a heartbreaker. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And it's interesting because I found that, um, you know, I do like to go to places that I'm going to write about them. But I often find that, especially when it's it's quite a ways back in history, that reading the sources is just maybe not just as good but it's it's 
it's telling it's allowing me to visit the place in history in a way that even visiting it now wouldn't do oh you're so right and in fact when i've written things set in say 18th century wales i've, I've done all my sort of text-based research first and i only visit the place late because the last thing i want to do is bring in the atmosphere of modern swansea if i'm writing about the 18th century um mm. because when you go to a place now you have to just stand there in a befuddled state kind of editing out all the modernity and even the skelligs you know you'd have to edit out the tourism and the people with gopro cameras on their heads and the safety rails and the um, boatmen and the nature guides you know you'd have to strip all that away um, so I think in this case, it was kind of perfect that I didn't go because really mm -hmm. the only way to make such a journey is as a, a highly educated, imaginative leap. Um, mm -hmm. You know, the Skellig of the year 600 is, is not there, um, even if it's a, a place that is still made of rock and grass. Um, but still, I look forward to going now because I'm so fond of the place, you know, and I've, of course, luckily, it's a very well documented island. So I was able to look at, you know, people's videos of kayaking around the islands with the bird shit raining down on their heads um, mm. or, you know, detailed drawings of um, all the little the stone, the dry stone huts there. So I was I suppose as I as I usually am, I was very um, dependent on and grateful for other people's testimonies and um, for instance there are a lot of kind of survivalist people out there um who will show you know put a 10 minute video on the internet showing how they carved a, a, a pipe out of a swan bone and tuned it perfectly or you know showing how they will start a fire um or carry fire in a pouch or make their own neolithic style underwear you know <laughs> um and again, I don't have those skills myself, so it was hugely helpful to to see other people's um, documentation and videos about things like how you'd make a, a dry stone wall. Mm. No writer works alone, I suppose is what I'm saying. <laughs> you know? Yeah, yeah, and it's wonderful, you know, just even living in the age of, of YouTube and things like that. The, 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 <laughs> oh, perversely, the internet has been a godsend to history. It has made history so much more accessible. It's made it possible for people to share knowledge and information. Yeah, I used to feel much more like, oh, I'm going to have to go to that place and go to the local library and see what I can find. And now it's more like, you know, I, I plunge down an internet rabbit hole to find things and, or to track down the really specialist books that you sometimes need. The answer to this one can very well be pass uh, because I know you're not always in a place to talk about it. But uh, do you have anything you want to say about what's coming next? Um, I suppose the next um, lovely drama for me is that um, the wonder, uh, the film of the wonder is coming out. Um, it's going to be a Toronto Film Festival um, in in, in mid-September. So I'm I'm flying back to Canada for that because I couldn't miss it. And um, that was um, scripted by me and our director Sebastian Lelio and Alice Birch and. Um, it was produced by the same company who produced the film of Room, Element Pictures, wonderful Irish smallish studio. Um, so I couldn't be happier about that. And, and to be able to, last August, go back to Ireland and go on the set and watch them making that under COVID conditions, you know, with all of us being tested every two days, um, that was just such a thrill. Um, it had that kind of huge thrill of like, here I am going somewhere after COVID, but all the more so, here we are managing to make this film despite all the obstacles. Um, so, yeah, that should be coming up shortly and then it'll be released on Netflix. Um, so, yeah, that's 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 my next big excitement, I suppose, is The Wonder. Well, it's been a, a really wonderful conversation. And, uh, you know, thank you for this book. It really it did. It landed at a wonderful time for me, as I said at the beginning, and I'm sure that will be true for many people. So, um, you know, it's, it's funny. It's a pandemic book in several senses for me because um, 
it's it's about you know getting away from a, a, a dirty plague-ridden world that kind of you know fear of society um, and there were plenty of plagues they had to get away from but equally for me it was the ideal thing to be writing during covid because it was just so far from my own concerns you know my own concerns were quite specialist ones to do with you know dehydrated food or you know when we get a vaccine or you know which mask was a good mask and my monks are dealing with much more concrete life and death how do we get through the day but equally big existential questions about what is the purpose of a human life mm-hmm. and what do we owe each other and how much does it matter whether we live or die? So, so yeah, I, I highly recommend an absorbing, strange, far away time and place to write about mm-hmm. for getting through, you know, the, the tedium of lockdowns. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it is interesting the way that, you know, that, that word escapism, you know, it often implies that you're getting to be somewhere else, but then you end up coming back from a different road to ideas of community yeah. and everything else. Yeah, and the, and the books and, and films and so on that we escape with, they don't have to be fluffy or light. Sometimes they're just, you know, just literally a trip. They're just far from our current concerns mm-hmm. and gives us a break from the, the kind of, you know, nonstop of the present day. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. All right, I'll stop here. Thank you very much. Thanks so much, Kate. This was great. That was Kate Hartfield in conversation with Emma Donahue. Kate's novel, The Embroidered Book, and Emma's latest, Haven, are both available now from your favorite independent bookseller. Thanks to all our patrons, volunteers, and donors. And thanks to the Government of Canada, the Government of Ontario, the City of Ottawa, the Ontario Arts Council, the Canada Council for the Arts, Ottawa Public Library, Carleton University, and CBC for their ongoing support. This podcast is produced by Aaron Flynn, original music and sound engineering by Mike Dubay, Kira Harris is our program director, and I'm Sean Wilson. Thank you for listening.